0: Welcome to the Liberty Block. I'm Elliot Axelman. We are joined today by a great author Blaine Pardo, who is now my teammate on Defiance Press and Publishing. Blaine, thank you so much for joining the program. Oh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm excited. And the, the timing works out interestingly, but not perfectly. I started your book only last night, so I'm not <laughs> fully through it, but I am already pissed at you because you said it was fiction and it turns out it's not fiction. It's just set a few years of free fear of, of what exactly is going to be happening uh once progressives run the government so I'll go ahead and introduce yourself and or your book whatever you want
1: sure my name is blaine pardo um i'm a best-selling and award-winning author i usually write military history true crime science fiction things along those lines i've uh, just recently pinned uh, my first political thriller which we were just talking about a little bit uh which is blue dawn which is an alternate history uh Set five years after the, a violent overthrow of the federal government by the progressives, and uh, it's kind of a different approach to uh, addressing some of the things that we are experiencing right now. I really wanted to find a good way to kind of articulate, you know, what what that progressive utopia—and I'm using that word loosely—might look like, and, and what that means to the freedoms of the people that are are part of that or having it inflicted on them. <laughs>
0: Excellent. And you've written a whole bunch of books in the past and they were some, it looks like you were in gaming, in the, the, the gaming world or war games.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I write a lot of Battletech uh science fiction novels. I still have, I still do. I enjoy doing it. Um, and I'll be continuing to do that. Uh, my publisher has been very supportive of me exploring different genres and, you know, it's fiction. So it's I'm not telling anybody this is what's going to happen, I'm just saying this is something that could potentially happen. Um, But yeah, I've been doing that. Um, I write true crime primarily with my daughter. Um, Her and I write those those books together. We tend to focus a lot on cold cases, but we occasionally do closed cases as well, which is fun. And uh, so I I write in a lot of different genres. I have a lot of fun doing it. I write the things I like reading.
0: Fiction and nonfiction, because I've never Done any fiction, I can imagine that it's it's hard to be creative to just create totally uh, you know new things. Like I write about things, it's kind of simple. I hate the government. I write. I hate the government. They suck. You know, very simple. It doesn't take a lot of creativity in, in that same way. Whereas I'm reading the book and there are characters. I start getting invested in the characters because I rarely read fiction. And it's I read a whole chapter like this. It was so interesting. It was more compelling than most of what I read, which is drier. How difficult do you find it's a lot more difficult to be creative and create characters and create an entire story like writing a movie?
1: You know, I, I honestly, it's not these characters really came to me and they really it, it was easy to develop their arcs and in terms of where they're going to go, because it goes on for multiple books. This is just the first book. I'm I'm already hip deep into the second one. Uh, for me, I find fiction easier to do because when you're writing nonfiction, you've got to be factually accurate and you, you have to do the research. I love doing the research. It's a lot of fun, especially when you do true crime and military history. It's a blast. But you, you really have to be concise and accurate in how you word stuff. You know, with fiction, you, you have a certain degree of license. You know, I don't have to look up and see what the weather was on a certain day. I can just say the weather was this on a certain day. and you know, So you get a lot more creative freedom, I think, to do it. And it, it flows a lot faster. With nonfiction, there's a ton, and people never see it. You know this, because I've started reading your works there's a lot of organization that you're doing up front to present where you're going to go and how you're going to get people to align to your thinking. And so it's not just gathering your facts, it's validating your facts. And how do you want to structure those in such a way to do it? I think nonfiction is a little more challenging that way.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And I was thinking about that a little bit as well. Like, There's a lot of tedious research and and fact-checking, of course. I don't want to get things wrong, so I make sure I find some pretty good sources and hard numbers and figures, whereas you obviously have a lot more creativity, a lot more freedom to, you know, make up exactly like I see you made up some future agencies, which, again, I'm pretty certain are actually going to happen. We're going to have national police force. You've been saying it for years. So what exactly was your... uh, inspiration for this and how long ago did you start writing Blue Dawn, the first one?
1: I would say chapter six was something I started probably 15 years ago, maybe even longer. Um, had dinner with a guy. We started talking about how to blow up buildings because he's former army and stuff. and We started mulling that over and I kind of jot down some notes at that time. I've always wanted to do a book on a new American civil war. and it's very difficult to articulate because I, I, being a historian, I understand civil wars very well, especially the American civil war, which I've done a lot of research in. And I think what people are always looking for is, well, you know, what state is going to go which way? And it doesn't, this is, we're no longer that country. We, this is a civil war where you're looking at urban areas versus rural areas, where you're looking at certain geographies and counties against other counties, and the numbers don't match up, and the way war would be fought would be very different. So I had to really spend some time kind of mulling over the actual reality version of this, because I want people to be immersed when they read the book and really go, okay, this makes sense how it's unfolding, because the minute they start going, it doesn't make sense, everything falls apart. And to be honest with you, the news media has handed us everything. You mentioned the, the nationalization of our police force. President Obama pushed for that, you know. And I, I went and researched the speech on that. AOC is a wonderful wealth of material. I mean, you know, of things, you know, their their entire um, project of tracking Trump supporters so that they can extract revenge on them, you know, and things on those lines. So in many respects, the news media literally served me up. Uh, a wealth of material, and really, what I decided to do is let's give the the progressive left everything they want. So I've given them everything that they want. They're locking up the the conservatives and sending them off to social quarantine camps, you know, for their own good, of course. But um, you know, so you know, the, I kind of equate this. I read the nine eleven report, and one of the things that really leapt out at me in the nine eleven report, when, when you read it, is they go, look. Islamic fundamentalists have been at war with the United States for 25, 30 years. They were attacking our embassies. They were blowing stuff up. They tried to blow up the World Trade Center before. They were at war with us. It wasn't until the towers came down and the Pentagon was hit that America really realized, oh, we're at war. And I kind of feel that's where we're at now where the left is at war with conservatism, period. They're waging war. There's no compromise. There's no middle ground. They're not looking for it. They're not going to give it. And the problem is with conservatives is we tend to view the. We tend to view that's okay. We as conservatives always tend to view these things as well. Maybe we can find some middle ground. Maybe we can compromise. If we compromise enough, we'll, we'll get along. And every time we're compromising, we're the ones compromising. We're giving up things that we claim are our values and and our, our morals. We're willing to compromise those things to try to suit things over. What has not dawned on most conservatives is this the war has already started. This is already happening. And so I really wanted to from a fictional perspective be able to kind of capture that and get people to frame that in some way in their thinking. So you know it's a piece of fiction, but there's elements of it that are based on real world things that have been said and proposed and initiated, you know, by the progressive left, which makes it kind of an interesting read. If you're conservative, I think it pisses off some conservatives and I guarantee you it pisses off people on the left. So that kind of tells me I've hit the nail on the head.
0: Yeah. So far, everything that I've read, like you said, it's very reasonable. Nothing is crazy, um, like unreasonable that, that couldn't happen. Everything that's either happening or, or, could happen. I see happening as the natural development, the evolution of progressivism and the policies in the United States. I see it happening in the next few years. So in five years, we could totally be exactly there in Blue Dawn. What's interesting is a lot of the things in the book, so it's brand new, right? It came out like a month ago. Uh, it came out a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. So And it seems like obviously you included January 6th. So you wrote it. You must have submitted it a few months ago after January 6th, right? Because- No, actually I wrote the book before January 6th. It's so interesting that like a lot of the things throughout the book, even the chapter one, it talks about how the uh, national enforcement service, or whatever the national police, is tracking and persecuting and uh, intimidating and violating people who are who are crazy radicals and horrible seditionists who do crazy things, such as believe in gun rights and believe in capitalism and believe in you know personal liberty, and those are considered radicals, and they need to be harassed and eventually arrested and persecuted and put into these camps so they can be educated them. These are things that a year ago, I would have said, Blaine, you're crazy, you're a conspiracy theorist nut, take off your tinfoil hat, you're stupid, that'll never happen. But now, we're already seeing it. The last few weeks, we're seeing calls of any, everyone, obviously, af- after January 6th, anyone who is conservative or white or pro-capitalism or pro-gun is, by definition, a treasonous, seditionist bastard who needs to be locked up. And that is how it works already today. So this only happened in the last few months. So things are moving very quickly, you know what I mean? Even a year ago, I would have said you're crazy, but now it's it's happening.
1: Yeah, it, it's amazing to me what I've experienced going through writing this book because, you know, I've I've had people jump up and down on me who clearly haven't read the book, but they go, this is, you are an alt-right conspiracy, quantum conspiracy, and I'm like, I had to look up what QAnon was, you know, I mean, I was everyone's like, the I, now. everyone's QAnon, they're all, they're all tied to it. And the word alt-right is thrown around now as radical. And, and I've got a friend who's in the military right now. And he's like, you know, they're going through trying to identify, and I'm using air quotes here, extremists. But what they're really looking for is who are the conservatives? Mm-hmm. That's what we're trying to find is who are conservatives? Because now any thought of conservatism is considered radical. And so they can label it any way they want, they can package it any way they want. And and that that puts you in this camp of of extremism. Uh, You know, I think both sides misuse the word Nazi a lot. You know, they we use it incorrectly on the left. The left definitely misuses it on the right. And, And it's it's things like that that I think kind of galvanize us. And what we've also seen is that they have developed a mastery of the English. They've taken control of the language. They control what the words mean. And if they don't like what the words mean, they change the words. So four years ago, we had global warming. Global warming was going to destroy everything. But then we had two winters that were actually quite cold. So then we decided it's not global warming, it's global change, it's climate change. That's the new package for this. And and so they're constantly rebundling and repackaging the language so that if you go and say, well, global warming doesn't apply, and I'm not arguing pro or con on any of this, but if you go and say anything about global warming, you go, well, we're not talking about that anymore. We're talking about climate change.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's how they blame us for, if it's too hot, too cold, too wet, too dry, too few storms or too many storms, it's climate change and it's because of horrible white people like lane it's your fault
1: yeah, yeah. and i I've, I've had people label me all sorts of crazy stuff on the internet and you know, it's amazing to me because i'm like look i'm not advocating any of this i'm not i'm just a writer i'm telling stories and i'm trying to frame it in a way so that people can have a good conversation about this and people are, they climb all over you. Uh, I've had somebody, who, yeah, I had to go out, go to court and get a protective order because a person threatened me. Um, you know, because And this was before the book was out <laughs> that somebody went off the deep end and started reaching out to a close friend of mine and saying, oh, hey, I wanna effing shoot him in the effing garage. And, and it, it blew my mind that somebody would be that unhinged over something they hadn't even
0: read. Well, might no one book had cover. Read it and your book cover is pretty racist and oppressive. It has the uh, Mount Rushmore on it, right? That's yeah. racist and oppressive. So you, you know,
1: well, that word they can't go. that word racist has now been so misused. I'm not sure personally even uh, does it have the same meaning that it did before because everything can be. I, they removed a, a boulder somewhere out west this last week because mm-hmm. it was a racist boulder and i struggle with how, how can a big stone be racist i it, it really does blow my mind what i'm watching unfold here and the media you know to me there's this unholy alliance of the progressives big tech and the media and it's this unholy little trinity that they have that uh kind of conspires on this and they totally agree to it i i, I struggle I don't know what, for sure, everything that happened on January 6th. I'm not saying it was an insurrection or not, but nobody's been charged on that yet. Not a single person who's been arrested has been charged with treason or has been charged with insurrection. So if no one is charged for insurrection, did an insurrection actually happen? But, you know, that afternoon, it was being called an insurrection. And if you come out and
0: deadly insurrection where people died.
1: Yes. And, and being a historian, I immediately went into research mode. And I'm sure you did, too. And I started digging around going, well, how many insurrections have we had where no one took weapons in, you know, to to overthrow government? And I have yet to be able to find uh, other than peaceful protests that have led to change, like what Gandhi did, et cetera. I can't find any evidence of a violent insurrection that was completely unarmed. You know, and if they had caught these people with handguns and machetes and things on those lines, those would be paraded out on TV
0: for all of us to see it. And these are the exact people who have weapons. This is the far right, alt-right conservatives, Trump supporters. Everyone knows they have weapons. If they would have wanted real (laughs) violence, they would have brought them. The fact they didn't bring them means they really didn't mean to just do a protest.
1: And the Internet lawyers will sit and argue over what the definition of insurrection is. But so I'm just going to go with what I consider a plain English version, which is you're going to overthrow the government and replace it. And and so if you look at what happened on the 6th, I always kind of go back to what scenario could have transpired in there for them to have put Trump on office. Well, they weren't going to force the Senate and the House to vote any, any way other than what they did. If they did, they'd simply reverse it. Um, if they killed everybody in there, that wouldn't have changed any. You know, it, there's no scenario where the government is replaced. <laughs> Where, where this crowd was going to do that. Now they're completely guilty of federal trespassing charges, uh, ignoring the orders of, of law officials, you know, on federal grounds. You know, there's a whole slew of things, vandalism, et cetera, uh, guaranteed. You know, they were where they weren't supposed to be and didn't leave when they were told to leave. But uh, is that does that make it an insurrection? And, and I'm I'm not there. I, I'm really not there yet. Now, I'm I'm open to hearing when these go to court, I want to hear what the evidence is that
0: really places that there. Well, what really bothers me is that over around 500 people have been arrested. And since January, or, or in the past few months, whenever they were arrested, for months now, they've been sitting in jail. A lot of reports of them being tortured with solitary confinement or other torture punishments, but they haven't been convicted, right? And as I think you mentioned, and I, I uh, highlighted it in my book, I took a picture of it and highlighted it where you say you're uh, guilty until proven innocent. And, and my next book is gonna be called Undue Process, How We're Presumed Guilty Until Proven Innocent. And it really bothers me. Once I realized about this, once I realized how it works and how it's supposed to work, innocent to proven guilty, but the way it actually works in effect in the United States. Now, unfortunately, in most cases, is the presumption is guilt, not innocence. That really pisses me off. And these people who have not been convicted yet are being sitting in jail and being punished before being convicted. You can't be punished until you're convicted. So that's a big issue for me. You know, and I get it because there's a
1: concern that if this wasn't attempt to third government, you don't want somebody who's out on the streets doing it. And it's not uncommon in law, in some cases, in very violent instances, that they keep they post somebody with no bond and no bail and keep them in jail. But some of these people, this is their only crime they've ever committed, other than traffic violations. So I'm struggling a little bit with some of the, some of this doesn't add up, you know, to me. But I'm open to hearing. What is it? And to your point, I, that's one of the reasons I have social enforcement so much in the book. The SEs, you you have to have, when the revolution's over, you always have to have something to do with the crazy revolutionaries, and you got all these antifa groups out there. What are you going to do with them? Well, they become you know the brown shirts. They become these social enforcers who go around and met out justice as they see fit, and. They're not bound by the laws to do it. They can just come through and say, well, I you know, I think you're a radical and they can destroy your life. They can do this. And I tried to capture that in the book because I think that's one of the things that's a little creepy is the left is crawled in bed with these extremist groups who are bent on taking down the United States, taking down capitalism. I mean, it's right in their freaking charters that they post online. Mm-hmm. They've crawled in bed with them and said, well, because you all hated conservatives and we hate conservatives, we're willing to align with you. That never works in the long term. It just doesn't. At some point, these people are going to turn on them. They're the proverbial scorpion on the dog's back. Why did you sting me? Well, it's my nature. I'm a scorpion, you know, and that's what they're going to do. At some point, this will flip on them. And I, I really try to draw a lot of parallels from the French Revolution into my novel because if you watch what happened with the French Revolution, it didn't end well for most of the revolutionaries. They actually turned on each other. You know, Robespierre was killed by you know his fellow revolutionaries, and you see that in in so much that's going to unfold. Is the more power they get, the more they start turning on each other.
0: Yeah, I think to some extent their movement is cannibalistic. Kind of they they cancel us, they cancel each other. They've been canceling Cuomo now as well. So that reminds me about Antifa. You reminded me of one of my issues with. With you and with most people on the right, is the term anarchist gets used in a very interesting way, which I think a lot of people on the right who don't necessarily think about it may be misunderstanding or misusing it. So essentially anarchist, we'd all agree generally means uh, support of no government, right? Correct. Yeah. So when basically BLN and Antifa, I understand why some people call it anarchists, and they might identify as anarchists themselves, but essentially what BLM and Antifa want is not less government, like anarchy. They want more government. They want communism, authoritarian communism. So in general, when BLM and Antifa progressives like AOC, she doesn't want less government, she wants more government. So that's where, you know, I know they burn stuff down and they tried burning down courthouses. That obviously is kind of anarchistic, but you see how I kind of have an issue with calling Antifa anarchists and saying those darn anarchists want no government. And I'm like, no, I want no government. I want to get rid of taxes and all the government. They're the opposite. They, they want more authoritarian communism. See, so you see why that gets awkward?
1: Oh, yeah. As a historian, I always go back to the anarchist movements from the 19-teens and 20s that that emerged. And a lot of what they're doing very much mirrors what you see with Antifa, which was they did random bombings of stuff that had nothing to do with any cause. It didn't fulfill anything. They were just sowing seeds of chaos. And to a certain degree, that's where I fall with it is these people are willing to sow seeds of chaos and, and to cause anarchy. That doesn't necessarily make them... Traditional anarchists, but in dialogue, people will refer to them as such. You know that that's where it falls. There's a big difference between that and getting into the clinical aspects, as you're kind of done, which is let, let's look at actually where they fall on that spectrum. And I think there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of concern I have is that their expressed move, movements have said we want to do away with capitalism. We want the United States to come down. And, and I, they definitely want to reboot it in some sort of socialist
0: image. And, and they might it, be a little confused as well. I mean, they say they want like anarcho communism, which is probably a, uh, an oxymoron. You know, you have to have a very strong government to have authoritarian communism. It's the ultimate omnipotent government, but anarchism is the opposite. So, anarcho communism in general, I would say, is an oxymoron. But I think some Antifa's probably confused, right? They say they want less government, but they're asking for more government.
1: Yeah, I don't think they, you know, and then people go, well, Antifa is not a group, so you can't apply values against them. But each group kind of, you know, they each stand alone. I think they don't agree with each other. They're not organized. One of the premises I have to do in the book is at some point they're going to have to align on certain actions um, and coordinate what they're doing. They're definitely organized. And anybody that tells us that Antifa doesn't exist and it's not a real organization, they collect money, they purchase things, they organize, they have training, they have all the elements of an actual organization. The fact that they may not have filed appropriate tax forms or whatever, again, I don't subscribe to the craziness of internet lawyers trying to parse out what. You know they are and what they aren't. I think what they're going to end up with is exactly as you described. It, it is big government. It is there's no way around that. And they seem to believe that there's this endless well of money that that they can tap into to do all the things that they want to do. Uh, you know, the concept of you know flags being racist and you know our money is racist and things along those lines. It's like. I, I don't understand how they can align against physical objects the way they do.
0: Oh, it's literally everything. They've said the Smithsonian, which is a museum associated with the federal government. It's run by the federal government, I believe, the oh, Smithsonian yeah. system. They came out with a blog post, and it was right next to their anti-racist blog post. Is a racist blog post saying um, characteristics of whiteness, and it lists I, all horrible things that white people do. And white people do a lot of horrible things. Like they believe in uh, hard work, linear logic, and like family, all these terrible things, right? So it's very interesting trying to paint, you know, white people as evil for these horrible things, but they list like literally objectively positive characteristics, like hard work and virtue and decency and, um, you know, uh, capitalism and linear logic and math and respect. And, like those are literally positive attributes. So that was interesting. So another thing that, that gets me and it's kind of hypocritical is Antifa literally stands for anti-fascist. And when we accuse them of being authoritarians or fascists or communists, they say we're not fascists, we're anti-fascist, it's in our name. So it must be true, right? Like because we all know the name must mean, you know, like liberation must mean that you want freedom. But what's amazing is that the definition of fascism, literally the definition, if I'm not mistaken, is the government and private enterprise, all private business, blending into one such that the government controls the economy, right? Which is you know very similar to socialism, of course. Fascism is literally like like the government c- controlling businesses. Isn't that what we have now? It isn't that what the left supports where the government and Amazon and Google and Facebook are so closely in bed, they're indistinguishable from one another. So we have an increasingly fascist society and it's kind of being pushed by the left and those who support Antifa probably support actual fascism as well.
1: I, I believe so. And I think a, a lot of the push needs to come back to, I think if you had gone back 10 years and said, to to the liberals in Congress. And, you know, how do you feel about if if I told you that Amazon was going to be this giant megacorp that controlled data and literally all online shopping that occurs? How would you feel about that? How would you feel if, you know, certain social media platforms literally started editing what you were doing? If you went back in time and talked to liberals, they'd they'd be up in arms over it. It's to their advantage right now. So they're completely comfortable with it. And this goes back to what I said with Antifa. They're willing to crawl in bed with people that they don't have control over. And at some point, that flips. It always does. But I don't see it happening really soon, unfortunately. And that's right now, I think uh, what I'm seeing with big tech is they're waging what I call monkey warfare against conservatives. Uh, When my book was released, the morning my book was released, all of the pre-orders for the Kindle version were terminated. (laughs) Now, Amazon said I had pre-ordered a copy of the Kindle version for myself just, just to have a copy. And Kindle sent me a message. Or yeah, I got a message from Amazon saying, publisher has canceled this book. So I reached out to our publisher and said, well, what happened? They said, we didn't touch anything. We have no idea what happened. And when we got together as a group of authors, we started talking. And this is not uncommon. We had one author whose book mysteriously went to $800 a copy. Now, Amazon you know, will fix it and straighten things out but oops well for a while there that person's not selling any books Uh, I had one author tell me he said I've been trying to post on your um, book I bought a copy and I've been trying to post a review of it and all his review was it's a great book I highly recommend it it's been flagged twice by Amazon for being radical content extremist and they won't post the review so you know there's this whole when I hear that there's no censorship, and then I hear that you know big tech really isn't monkeying with people, et cetera, they are. They're totally monkeying with us, and, and they know it. They think it's cute. They think it's funny. But in the end, you know, if this were done to them, if this was d- done to Michelle Obama's book, there, there would be huge outcry uh, on the part of of liberals about, oh my God, what are we going to do to rein in Amazon's
0: tyranny? There would be peaceful as- protests in Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> so when Facebook or Amazon or Google does this censoring or punishing conservatives, clearly targeting libertarians, conservatives, that's one thing. And I, for years, up until a few months ago, was a private property, free market absolutist. And I said, private companies can do whatever they want. But where the fascism comes in is when the government is doing it. If the government shuts down your book, that's obviously a violation of free speech. And I argued bitterly. If you go back and forth on, on the podcast, I argue with Ed, who's, who's an attorney, and he's one of the co-hosts on our podcast. And I argued with him a lot. And I said, no, private companies can do what they want. And he won me over over months and months of arguing. He beat me over the head with it, and he finally won me over. And he convinced me that the government has so much influence over it. Meaning, for instance, if the government gives Bezos a billion dollars and a wink and a nod and says, it would be a shame if you canceled some conservative books, and then Amazon cancels her book. That's not bezos making that decision in a vacuum that's government coercing him or influencing him or incentivizing him to punish us and then the government's involved and then again that's semi-fascism right that's a government doing it and the government's doing this i'm not saying they're giving billions to Bezos, saying target Blaine and, and elliot but when they're like we recently had a few weeks ago we were debating this and then biden came right out biden and jen saki said we are working with facebook to make sure we're telling facebook to censor any misinformation about COVID. Anyone who says COVID is less dangerous I, I, than the at least right saying, where I was going to go. Right.
1: I was so going to go there. So that
0: kind of settled the debate. I was debating with other libertarians and anarchists about this. And I said, listen, I was exactly where you were a few months ago. I'm the biggest private property rights absolutist in the world. That being said, this is government. This isn't private. No, put it this way, no store owner in anywhere in the United States who says I have to put a mask on when I enter is making that decision of his own volition. The government has been coercing that with propaganda, with money, with lawsuits, courts giving standing to employees who sue for unsafe work environment, giving money to uh, unemployment money for those who stay home because of no mask mandates in place, thereby incentivizing a mask mandate to happen. So when you're giving them money, literally you're giving them money or you're hurting them financially without a mask mandate, you're encouraging them with a bribe to put a mask mandate in place. Meaning it's not the store owner, not the business owner making the mask mandate because he wants to It's because government is giving him money, giving him financial incentive to do it. So Everything's so screwed up. And, and the biggest thing, I, I resent the government for a billion reasons. One of the worst things is that they have successfully made what I would consider a 100% stone-cold, hard, private property rights, absolutist, voluntarist. They've made even me into a gray area, murky, unprincipled person who now has to debate this because even I feel like my own property rights, which are 100% absolute, are now pretty complicated.
1: You've hit the nail on the head. I see it all the time when somebody posts something, they post a funny meme about Covid, And a fact checker will immediately block the view of that and say, you know, click here because this is misleading. Well, who told you it was misleading? Your Facebook, okay? No offense, you're not a medical authority on jack shit, you know. So who told you what was right and what was wrong? Well, we get it from the CDC, we get it from reliable sources, science, you know, which seems to be the the big outcry for everything. And, you know, I've watched that and it's exactly what it is. It's the government is telling them, do this block this we want you to do that we want you to corrupt it so if you post it you know i guess rand paul got pulled down the other day for for posting stuff rand paul's a doctor so I, i'm confused you know
0: where how, how is he less valid than another doctor well the it's, government determines what is the truth and i, I assume you read 1984 oh yeah the, the government whatever they say becomes truth and law and science if they say the sky is not blue it's green if they say you know the the earth is on top and the sky is on bottom, that becomes the fact. If Literally, if the FDA and CDC say it, if the DHS says it, that becomes the fact. And that's what's so scary. It's like we're living in a dystopian Orwellian world now where they can come out tomorrow and say, all white people are by definition Nazis and have to be killed. And that becomes the fact and the accepted truth throughout the world. And that's why I'm so pessimistic. As Again, as you say in your book, it's so realistic to me because I'm already a pessimist who I think can see what the future is bringing because I've gotten decent at predicting the uh, trends and, and how things evolve. It's its gonna be exactly like that within a few years, maybe less than five years. What the government says is the law and and anyone who believes in even capitalism or homeschool rights or gun rights or economic freedom or personal liberties or health freedom, anti-vaxxers, they're going to be considered a menace to society and either shot like some people want, You know, some leftists are tweeting now they want to just shoot anti-vaxxers because um, they care about life. That can happen in the future. And once that happens, we're screwed. That's why I'm so big on splitting up the United States so at least we could save a few states with some, you know, normal people who aren't violent sociopaths, and let the others, like California, be crazy.
1: Yeah, you know, there there are some places that are so far gone that it's so deeply indoctrinated that, you know, and they've had decades of baking this into the kids at, at every grade level, all the way through college. And uh, you know, is, is it salvageable? I I always I always kind of side on the side of eventually reason takes over you know, and people do eventually arrive at the right conclusions, but the journey to get there is long and very, very painful. And, I, you know, there are some states that I don't know how California even functions. I mean, it just, it, it amazes me that, you know, watching their governor in the middle of this pandemic going to restaurants without a mascot, you know, literally the same day he's telling people, you have to do this. And, There's no outrage. There's no, you know, yeah, they're recalling him, but will they really, you know, in the end, you know, is this a, or is it a political gesture? It's going to cost more millions of dollars. You know, uh, you look at the homeless problem there. I, I don't think anybody's actually addressing what's happening there. And it seems to be very acceptable. That well, we have a huge homeless problem. I, I talked to a friend of mine who was doing court duty in San Francisco and he was like, I got off the the train and he goes, It's literally you have to watch where you're walking on the sidewalk because there's piles of human feces mm-hmm. on the sidewalk. And he goes, I you know, he's like, I never used to be that way. Five years ago it wasn't like that at all. And he goes, now it's a giant sprawling tent city
0: down there. And that's I don't bad. know if it is totally acceptable to everyone in California. A lot of people hate the leadership. Obviously, it's not a majority, but a lot do. But a lot are moving. And I think for the first time ever, I believe, they lost a uh, congressperson in the census, meaning they lost a few hundred thousand or or maybe a million people over the last 10 years. So people are moving out of California and moving to states like Texas and Florida, which we know are run by different kinds of uh, politicians than California. So in that, I guess I'm a bit optimistic in that regard. But still, I would agree that California is 100% not savable. And I think no one should waste time on California, New York, or New Jersey, or any of those far gone states. Yeah, I, I've I'm
1: not sure how those states will emerge from all of this. I I've watched New York, which I, you know, under the Giuliani era, was cleaned up. It was vibrant. The downtown was, you know, five years ago, the downtown was thriving in New York. Four years ago, even, you know, it was it was a great place to go. It was, you know, we we made trips up there all the time, and and went and caught Broadway shows and ate out and had a good time. I wouldn't go to New York now if you made me, you know, unless it's something I have to do from a business perspective, I wouldn't go. And if I do go, I'm going to try to minimize my amount of time there because, you know, some of the big stores are gone. Macy's is gone. Um, You know, they've had the riots down there. I see the footage of the violence that's occurring, you know, right on the streets of New York. you know, this it's not the place it was. And I don't know what, I haven't heard anybody say, well, here's our plan to bring it back. Matter of fact, what I've heard is we're gonna lock everything down again. Maybe that'll help, you know? And I'm like, well, it didn't help the first time. I don't know why you think that
0: approach will work again. So being that you seem to agree that we're heading towards some kind of civil war um, between the urban communities like New York City and San Francisco, sorry, San Francisco and uh, Chicago and Detroit, And the more rural parts, like Wyoming, New Hampshire and and Southern Virginia, would you agree that maybe starting to split up uh, counties or states or some kind of division, some kind of political divorce is the best way to combat the the boiling, uh, simmering division going on in the United States?
1: I'm not there yet. And I'm just being fair with you. I'm just not there yet. Um, And the reason is it's never that easy. Even... When you go to any state, or or even a county or a city that you go. Well, this is predominantly one way or another. There's always people that are there and I, that are feel differently. And Americans, it's hard for us to move. You know, we have to move for the right reasons. And you have family ties and things that prevent some of that migration. And a lot of people don't want to change jobs, etc., and things along those lines. So I don't think it's a it's an easy divisional thing to to parse out. You get up to New York, you've got Albany and, and New York City that are, you know, deep hotbeds of, of liberalism. But the rest of the state's not, you know, and how do
0: you reconcile some of that? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Only... I think the only solution, which is probably impossible, but the only solution that makes a lot of sense and makes everyone happy is allow people to have the leaders they want. Literally, whoever you vote for becomes your leader. So on a, on a big grand scale, on a simple level, all everyone who voted for Trump, become, Trump is their president, everyone who voted for Biden can live under Biden's policies. And that way, you know, those who pay, who's voted for Trump get to have his laws, those who vote for Biden, and same on a more local level, that way everyone can opt in or opt out of the government they want every two years. And that way, for instance, if I want my kids to have a school choice, I can vote for a conservative governor. If someone wants only, you know, uh, compulsory education government run, they can vote for that and they can send their kids to public school, but I can opt out and not be forced to pay for indoctrinating kids to get, you know, four four-year-olds to have transgender and or G sex and all that stuff. So if, if everyone can opt out of each thing they want and you know live under the government they want, each person, everyone can have a hundred percent consent. Therefore, natural rights are not violated. Do you think there's any way to make something like that work?
1: The only problem that you run into that is politicians, by their nature, would feel like they're giving up something. And I'm not arguing the average person may say, I agree with that. And, and I could easily make cases for what you just said. It, it, it's got a lot of it's sexy. OK, you can polish it up. It, it's got some appeal. Having said that, though, you know, I don't think that, that they would be comfortable letting people themselves. And we've reached the point where we've seen this with the mask issue. It's it's not enough that you got the shot. Now you're going to have to wear the mask again. Well, why? I, I've gotten the shot. I did what you asked me to do. And I did it not for your reasons, but because of my own health reasons. And now you're telling me I have to wear a mask again. Yeah, because Bob down the street didn't get the shot. Well, that's Bob's problem. Well, We don't live in that society. And if you look at what the liberal left is doing is they're going, because Bob didn't get the shot, you have to change your behavior (laughs) to accommodate him. Well, my whole thing is if Bob didn't get the shot, Bob can get COVID. That's his problem. And if I'm the carrier, well, that's Bob's problem. I guess Bob needs to wear a
0: mask. We're all one collective. We're all responsible for each other. Stop thinking of the individual. Don't be selfish. We're all one community. We're all responsible for everyone. And it it just reminds me of Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead. We're all a collective society. Don't think, don't have an individual brain. We're all one community and everyone's responsible for everything. Freedom
1: is not collective. Freedom is individual.
0: Okay. My right to free
1: will and making determinations about how I live my life and what I do. That's not a collective thing that, the Constitution doesn't go. Groups of people have freedoms. It says you have freedoms that the government can't infringe upon. And I've been—I feel like for the last year plus, I've been infringed all over. If I get infringed anymore, I'm just going to bend over and take it. You know, it's this has been what has been forced upon us, and, and people have accepted it. And there's a huge, significant portion of the country that completely subscribes to that. They 100% believe. This is the way I want it to work. I think it's great. We all should join hands and sing kumbaya. You know, until Bob, who may never get that COVID shot, until he does, we're going to have to mask up. We're all going to have to chip in. And, and my whole thing is Bob's got a problem. It sounds like Bob needs to work on it. But that's not my problem. My problem is I have my own individual freedoms. And I think that's, that's the, one of the bigger divides you
0: see in this country right now. That's division, my take. Yeah, division and unity is extremely interesting to me. I'm working on a book about divide and conquer as well. Because we all would agree that politicians love to divide us. Divide and conquer is the you know one of the oldest tactics in the book, militarily for strategic uh, tactics. And we all know they tried to divide black and white, men and women, old and young, and all that. And so I'm going to write a book about every chapter about every type of division. But you know Biden said he wants to unite us, but he really doesn't want to. He said I'll be the great uniter in chief and I'll unite everyone. And then the next day he has dementia, so he forgets and he. Trash his conservatives and calls all conservatives, disgusting, hillbilly, they should die, get the COVID shot, you're dumb. He literally said the other day, well, you're not that smart, you're pretty dumb if you don't get the COVID shot. So call people dumb, of course, that'll help. So what are your thoughts overall on whether the United States is getting more united um, or more divided and, and how you see that playing out over the next few years? I'm pretty sure I know the answer.
1: I don't see it happening. When Biden said, you know, I'm going to be the great uniter, it was, yeah, I'm going to unite over under a democratic banner and under a progressive banner. And you need to hop on board with that. If you're not, you're part of the problem. And that was very much the tone that I got from the great uniter was, yeah, you just need to unite under my values. And that's it. Um, I think that they are going to continue to keep us divided. And it works to their advantage to do so. Uh, it's great because you tell people the problems aren't you. The problems are this other group. And I always find it hard when we take issues and, and values and ascribe them to a group and say, all conservatives are blank, all liberals are blank. I, I don't, you know, it's individual to me, but I watch that happening more and more where it's like, oh, you're, you're just alt right well, what's all right? Well, it's this definition of thing I just made. And I lump people into that bucket who I don't like, because that means you're an extremist, you're a bad person. You know, and it's so interesting to watch that happen and watch the dynamic of that happen, because it's all about, as you pointed out, keeping us divided. It's, if we can't come up with a bucket, we'll make a bucket. Yeah. you know, so alt-right, I heard it uh, when it first came out NPR did a piece on it. I wish I had kept a copy of it because they brought out experts who, who couldn't agree on what it meant. They're like, it's a made up word. Well, OK, you know, this was I'm I, I sitting there going, if it's made up, then it doesn't have any real tangible meaning. But now people use that and they'll come up. In, I guarantee you in six months we will have a new word or new phrase to describe what are considered radicals and dangerous people. Mm -hmm. And we're going to throw people into that bucket because the other buckets cease to have meaning over time, you know, because we all
0: start recognizing nobody knows what that is. So I was thinking maybe 50 years ago or 100 years ago, there were some, you know, there was a divide between the left and the right, but it wasn't maybe as big. The left was maybe the JFK Democrats who believed in like, just maybe a bit more social welfare and a bit more social open mindedness. Um, and, and obviously, there have been, FDR was a socialist, granted, but so it's been around for at least 100 years. But there's been, you know, very vigorous debate, even in the Constitutional Convention. They got very upset. And I think some of them even punched each other. So there's been intense debate, but never has the gap been between full Marxism and full capitalism. But I don't think, I don't know that there were a lot of people on the left 50 years ago even saying straight up, we should kill conservatives, we need to kill them all. Do you think that they've gotten more radical and violent, or do you think now with social media, we just, we could hear everyone on Twitter, everyone has a voice, so we see it happening more?
1: Yeah, well, and the media, unfortunately, feeds a lot of this. And, 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 and by the way, it's on both sides. I, I cringe every time Fox puts up, here's the next crazy thing that AOC said. I said, she's an internet troll. And that's what Trump was to a certain extent. I like Donald Trump quite a bit, but Trump was the ultimate internet troll. He knew how to say something that would put him on the media the next morning. And, and AOC does the same thing. And, and a lot of times that stuff doesn't have substance and it doesn't have meaning. I think some of these people are just crazy enough to believe some of the Kool-Aid they're drinking at this point, You know, they're, they subscribe to their crazy thoughts and that somehow this isn't gonna work. It cracked me up the other a few weeks ago when we had protests in Havana occurring and people were waving American flags. And, 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 you know, you had some reporters going, clearly, these people recognize communism doesn't work. And the first reaction from the left was, well, that's not real communism. That's Cuban communism. You know, that isn't what we're gunning
0: for. It's something else. Simply saying that they're not protesting for freedom. They're protesting about COVID because they're upset about COVID. And they're literally chanting Libertad. And granted, you know, because I'm an amazing bilingual Spanish speaker, I know libertad means liberty. (laughs) They were chanting for liberty. They wanted liberty. Um, Does libertad also mean we are sick of COVID and, you know, the virus is really killing us and we hate it? I don't know.
1: (laughs) Well, my favorite was they said, well, a lot of the problems that have been occurring there anyway are just due to climate
0: change. And I was like, how did that happen? They've been saying for years that the border crisis, sorry, it's not a border crisis, that is what they were saying for a while. They said the border immigration surge was because of uh, climate change, because global warming, because you see the uh, South America is all flooding. I don't know if you know this, but South America is all underwater by now already. So they're all forced to immigrate here. And that's why we have so much immigration here. They said this. I think their friend Alexandria said this, that they're coming here because, you know, global warming.
1: It's, It's crazy because it makes no sense. There's nothing to back it up. And this is from a group that says we're all behind the science. So show me how global warming is doing this, but even the Pentagon has hopped on this. They're like the number one threat to global security as global you know, climate change. And I'm like, uh, you know, I've studied military history for years. I know people who are in the military at various levels. All, one of the guys that lives in my community is former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff.
0: We're all kind of scratching our heads like where are you getting this from? Well, You, you understand why they're doing it, right? They, they realized that COVID, which was to some extent a test run of sorts, When they say emergency or national uh, state of emergency, which there have been quite a few states of emergencies, there are still a few that Jimmy Carter, uh, you know, implemented that are still in place. So it's been like 50 years. But whenever they say emergency, they did a test run and they realized that most sheep in the United States, like 300 million out of 330 million sheep, are willing to 100% go along with anything the government does and just lay down if you say it's a state of emergency. And that was COVID. Now they realized if we say that either gun, gun violence or global warming or racism are states of emergency, which they've already hinted at all three. Cuomo declared gun control emergency in New York. The Pentagon's been saying for years that global warming might be an emergency. It's almost an emergency. Um, and same with racism, I believe. They're saying it's an emergency. Racism is an emergency, meaning they can also suspend all constitutional rights during an emergency, which I think the courts have ruled that they can suspend constitutional rights in an emergency. Now that they've geared this up and put all the chess pieces into place, they're set up for a perfect... A situation where they can say global warming or racism or gun violence is an emergency. And now we have to totally abolish all freedom. So that's, I think, what they're setting up here. I I,
1: I don't disagree. I, I think they're definitely overplaying it. And I don't think, I'll, don't get me wrong. I believe that climate change happens. I believe the human beings do influence the climate. The question is, is should the United States be, be attempting to fix problems that are in india or in china or other lesser developed countries that are clearly contributing you know thousands of times more of the problem than we are you know and and what i worry about is the government level solutions and i call this the light bulb solution remember a few years ago we did away with regular light bulbs we went to you know mercury based light bulbs and and leds and overnight suddenly you couldn't buy a normal light bulb and i was like who the hell voted on this well, Congress did, and, and the president signed off on it, and it was in a bill. And it was—it's oh, this is for the better. We were going to have an energy crisis. This saved a lot of energy. And I was like, but I want a regular light bulb. <laughs> I want that. And it's like, no, you can't have that anymore. It's like low flush toilets. We took those away from you. Um, now they're talking about, well, we're going to do away with cars. Fifty percent of the cars sold have to be electric. And I'm like. My family's in Michigan. I live in Virginia. How do I get to them in an electric car? And they're like, well, you have to take mass transportation. Okay, so now more people are going to fly. How is that making, you're going to have electric jets? Because I I don't know how that's not. Gasoline
0: cars give you autonomy and freedom. Right. And if you have to charge it every 100 miles and they can very easily control the grid or stop you from charging it or tax it or control it or turn the rampage nice. or wattage up and down. They have a lot more control. Gasoline, you can load up your car, get a few gas tanks, put it in your trunk and drive forever. Total autonomy and freedom. With electric cars, they can totally control us. Like California is already saying, recommending or enforcing, maybe mandating that you can't charge more than an hour a day, meaning you can't drive more than four miles in a day. So you don't have a lot of freedom, right? So I think that's one of their big plays. It's There's a lot to it, but I think one of the big things is just control. And my dad's been saying for decades, they want everyone to take the bus and the train and they hate cars because cars mean independence, freedom, autonomy.
1: Yeah, and it's actually part of the American psyche to be able to get in your car, Mm -hmm. drive across the country, see the country, having that level of freedom out there. and, And I'm watching all these little things where the government is intervening. And I'm not saying they're not doing it with noble cause. Maybe we did need to replace light bulbs or whatever, but let's have an actual discussion about it before you... Go through and yank all the light bulbs. And by the way, the ones you replaced them with are filled with mercury. And they, if you read the box on any of these light bulbs, those fluorescent ones, it's like you can't, you aren't supposed to just throw those in the dump because that's going to cause, you know, problems in the landfills. So I'm very confused when the government attempts to intervene in anything. It it always has unintended consequences. It always has things that happen that they couldn't have remotely seen or planned for. And I I don't think they're smart enough to be taking on some of these large-scale issues like determining what kind of car I drive. I, I, I believe in capitalism. I'll tell you what kind of car I drive based on what I can afford to buy and what I want. That's how this whole country was built. And that system has worked just
0: fine for centuries. I agree that politicians aren't smart, but even if they were smart, I still wouldn't want them to control every single detail of my life. No,
1: I, they're, they're not. None of them have demonstrated that kind of level of intelligence. And to your point earlier too, 50, 60 years ago, the two sides weren't at war. They were, they had disagreements. But, you know, Tip O'Neill used to get drunk with Ronald Reagan and work through issues that they had to work through together. There's none of that taking place right now. Um, It is it's going to be our way because we're in control. And and don't get me wrong, Trump did the same thing. When when Trump and the Republicans were in, it was we're going to do things our way. It's there's no middle ground. Once we started this resist movement and said whatever he does, we're resisting it. We don't even care if what he does is something we agree with. We're going to resist it. That caused this ripple effect, I think, to where now it's like, fine, then we're going to resist everything that you do. And it's the the level of the divide is much more significant and much more crisp than it's ever been. I don't think the solution was guys like John McCain either. I I don't think compromising got us there. It, It didn't work. We always ended up conceding something to the other side. And I didn't see where they were conceding things. So I don't know how they're going to work through this at this point.
0: Excellent. So we're going to wrap up in a minute. What else can you tell the viewers and listeners about the book? Obviously, don't give away the whole thing and don't spoil it for me. What else can you say? Because you touched on it a little bit at the beginning.
1: Well, I got to tell you, the book is really, just bear in mind, it's piece fiction, but it's really based on a lot of real world things. And it's really designed to walk you through some characters who realize how corrupt the system is and how they're going to have to reset it. And it takes you on kind of a wild ride to do that and it's very interesting you're going to see some great character development in this where characters change sides and kind of their perspectives are altered and changed as they go through this plus you get the entire tapestry of the united states as kind of the background for this it really lays the foundation this leaves you with the start of that civil war you know again in fictional terms but it it gives you that basis for how it all unfolds
0: Perfect. And how can people find the book? What's the best way to buy it? And how can people find out more about you? Uh,
1: you can always find me on the internet. I, I've got a website, com. You can look me up. Um, the best place to get the book, obviously right now is on Amazon. Uh, if they don't bump the price up to $800 a copy, it'll be great. Uh- <laughs> So yeah, I always recommend people yeah, if you want it quick get it, get it from Amazon and I think it's going up on several other retailers later this month. so and will it be in some Barnes and Noble? I'm hoping they've got it in Nook right now. They're supposed to have it in paperback, but I, I haven't seen it yet. An audiobook as well. Yes, yeah, they're working on the audiobook. I I